This show is part of the Other Side Podcast Network. Welcome to the App and Appen Podcast, episode 83, a podcast for the IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Jerry. And I'm Stu. In this episode, we talk about Terraform. Talk about provisioning servers in Azure. We talk about what we've been up to. And we also talk about Ansible best practices. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, we're back for another episode. So, what's everyone been up to? That's a good question. Uh, so, I have uh, rebuilt my NAS and rebuilt it. So, it was a QNAP NAS and it was running the QNAP OS and it's now running Debian on, I think it's Debian Buster, I think it's the, the latest version. And it currently, it's just running NFS, but um, I have I have plans to to stick all of my all of my various low power requirement but continuous uptime requirements onto this fairly soon so that's that's the main thing i've been up to outside of work recently how about how about jerry what you been up to well i've i installed folding at home uh because i'd I'd heard about it i've been aware of it for a long time but i heard about it somewhere can't even remember where at the moment but it's folding at home calculations are being used in the uh, coronavirus you know scientific response type thing so uh, i thought i'd start doing that so i've started doing that i've done eight work units so far uh, and i joined the ubuntu podcast team but more interestingly for for this podcast is i i installed it in kubernetes so i actually copied someone else's manifests and just did it it that way but yeah maybe we can go into that at a later date when when i understand a bit more about what i did (laughs) (laughs) so i've i've been doing stuff like folding at home uh so um B-O-I-N-C or Boink, mm. uh, which is the client, I think, that does it. Yeah. Uh, I've been running that on my Android devices for probably about sort of four or five years now, uh, on and off. Right. Because uh, which phone was it I had? I had the uh, uh, the HTC M8, and you could get a Boink client from HTC as part of that. Right. And I ran that for a while. But you can. there's all sorts of things you can do with Boink. I didn't know it had an Android client, actually. I I am I did download this thing. It's called Vodafone Dream Lab, where you you're um you're you know you're doing distributed work units and so on. Mm-hmm. And I repurposed an old phone that I don't use anymore and just plugged it in and set it going. So it's doing loads of calculation for different scientific projects. Um, but yeah, uh, Boink. Yeah, I didn't realise you could get that on Android as well. So uh, I have to have a look at that. Yeah, so I'm just looking through the list of projects at the moment, and Amicable Numbers uh, one runs on Windows, Mac, Linux, ARM, uh, and NVIDIA and AMD-based uh, GPUs. Asteroids at Home uh, runs on Windows, Mac, Linux, Linux um, Android, BSD, ARM, and NVIDIA. Uh, Boink at TAC, Texas Advanced Computing Center. Even seems to have a virtual box thing as well. Right. There's loads. I uh, want to uh, climate predictions, cosmology at home. CERN have got a, a boink thing. Mm. Mind modeling, 
So there's lots of stuff. Obviously, it's not quite as uh, present as uh, the current the current thing you're you're running or folding at home stuff for. But uh, there's lots of other things you can be doing with it. There isn't a way to only contribute to COVID nineteen stuff with folding at home yet. So, but they but they might be in the future. But the I think it I the I think the article or the report that I heard was that the capacity of folding at home, you know, everyone that's doing it reach a certain milestone it's like it, there's like more computing power uh in the folding at home network than anywhere else <laughs> it's understandable really isn't it yeah the other place that folding at home was on was uh was on the playstation 3 wasn't it oh yeah you could leave it on as a screensaver and it would just run all the fans for mm. you know all night <laughs> yeah i did measure the um electricity usage to my uh, in my house as well and it's not that much so i'm happy to run it you know it's not it's not pushing my power bill up by any appreciable amount so i'm all right with it <laughs> so Stu, what have you been up to um so i've mostly been carrying on with my um, blog series that i've been running recently that I mentioned last time the ansible for networking one i've started writing up the one on um Micritix router os and I don't know if I mentioned last time, but there's no modules whatsoever for uh, Mikrotik. So basically what you're templating is literal commands. So every every command that you would run at the CLI is exactly the same as what you put in the um, Ansible playbooks. The main difference is you're able to use things like Ansible looping and um, things like um, just, you know, variables and that kind of thing. But other than that, there's... As I say, if I didn't know the CLI before, I would really struggle with this one. So it's possibly not the best example um, so far of what I'm doing. I've also um, started a little bit on trying to do the exact same, but on something like OpenBSD. So just to say you can do it, you know, on an actual operating system rather than just a network one. And yeah, compared to the Mikrotik one, it's templated about four files and it does exactly the same thing. So yeah, it's... It, it's very interesting seeing the contrast between them at the moment. Okay, so we'll put a link in the show notes to the, that to your uh, latest blog post. Uh, yes, the the last one I did was on Arista's EOS, um, which was hate to say it, but very, very, very close to the Cisco one because originally the um, guys that started Arista came from Cisco, and yeah, if you put CLI commands that you know from Cisco into Arista, nine percent of the time they work. Um, so that one's there, and then the Mikrotik one is just ongoing, and I'm hoping to get that out this week. Cool. So I've been kind of dealing at work uh, with uh, kind of Terraform and Ansible. I've been kind of tasked with looking at how we deploy or how we can deploy code or using code to to build our infrastructure and configuration management. So we're currently, as I said before, we're using Azure for stuff. For most of our stuff, we're doing platform as a service, So, um, which means that Microsoft will be, we were using like Microsoft web apps. Um, so we're basically just the, 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 uh, developers write the code and then we can just upload the code to azure and then we don't have to worry about setting up um websites or is or anything because microsoft does that for you but they're mainly all the code is mainly done by arm templates and it's kind of a, it's kind of um what the developers do but for us um as a devops guys i really find arm templates hard to read and if obviously, because we haven't written from scratch, it's kind of hard if they were asked to add something. So we're kind of mainly probably using ARM, tape, ARM templates for that. But 
we have got um, some of our solutions uh, still has to have physical Windows servers to run the code. So we're looking at a way of how we can um, just, well, deploy machines into into Azure. Uh, we've got free development, well, we've got free environments, which we look after. So we've got dev, UAT, and prod. And the problem we've got is that we're finding that we're spending loads of time fixing stuff because all three environments are different. We've got like issues where I've got an issue with one of the servers where we've got they've got five servers in the cluster and four of the machines are working fine, but the fifth one doesn't work because of a TLS issue. And the only difference I can see between them is that the fifth one has got latest updates on them and the other four haven't. So we've got no consistency of what patch levels they are. So we want to come up with a way of deploying VMs and well even just kind of um, having everything running the same patch level. So we haven't just, we haven't decided what kind of patch level we're going to do, but we're going to do it so that we get our development network or development environment working as we want to, because at the moment, group policy is a mess. Um, there's machines everywhere. So it's all a nightmare at the moment. So I've kind of been sorting that out. Um, but we're using Terraform, which is a really good little program so we can deploy... VMs because we've got a couple of tasks that really we want to deploy VMs ways so we could destroy them at the end of the month or whatever kind of do a continued integration of those yeah so I've been kind of getting Terraform which is if guys I guess most of you guys have used Terraform before yeah I I'd, with with uh, what you're describing I'd suggest building the images of the servers first and then just deploying the images so build the image separately get it to whatever patch level you need and then take an image of it. And then with Terraform, you can just deploy that particular image every time. That's that's probably the way to go. Yes, what I've done is because obviously when you can when you deploy VMs from Azure, you can do it from the marketplace, but obviously they put their own spin on it. And, it, and obviously you could deploy it one month and the next month it's different. So because we haven't decided on what patch level we're going with, and obviously we've got some code which is running on like servers which is like five, six months out of date, I have basically just built a image on-prem using MDT, which is Microsoft Deployment Toolkit, which is, because we've got Hyper-V, we're using that to deploy internally. So I basically just built an image with the release to manufacture image of Windows 9, 2019. I then patched it. Well, yeah, I haven't patched it. I literally did it. And you have to do, run it, you have to do a load of commands to make it. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. What Azure has to be, that VM has to be, so it's Azure is ready, so it's when you upload it. And I basically I basically scripted that in MDT. So I can basically build that machine and uh, build it, and then it shuts it, well, it sysprep's it, shuts it down and puts a BHD file. I then uploaded it to Azure using uh, the Azure Storage Explorer. And then you can make that as a managed image. So then I can use my Terraform code to deploy a virtual machine from that image. So I was following a blog series on um, YouTube of how to do this. And because Terraform is just one single file, isn't it, you can download? Um, when on Windows, it seems to be. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I basically download it, put it into a folder in any, any environment variables folder, you can put it so in there. So whenever you run Terraform command, it basically runs it. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't moan about it. So um, what I've done is I've, I've um, created three files in that in the folder. Uh, one was called main.tf is where basically the code is. So that basically tells you what 
what you wanted to create. So I'm basically creating a VM and attaching a data disk to it. And then after it's done that, it deploys it and then it creates and it, and it joins it to it joins it to our AD using Azure stuff. Azure. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Well, I think it's like a, a thing you can run. Um, and that basically means I can then add that, that gets added to my AD into like a staging folder. Then I can, then I can then do this next part. But I've got a, in that folder, I've also got a thing called a variable.tf file, which is basically where you describe what variables you want to have. So you set, say, what size it is, you define in there what what you're going to define, like your size of your V. Well, you don't actually define the size of it. You just basically just tell you what the, what the variable is going to be and then like what the computer's name is. But then you have a terraform.tf file, and that basically is where you say, I want it to be an A3 size VM and this is what I want the name of the name of the VM, et cetera, et cetera, where you want to, what OU you want to put it into, what AD you want to join it to. So I've got some suggestions for you there. What Terraform does is it loads all the .tf files and it builds a graph from that. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to have three separate files. You can just have one file that lists everything. Alternatively, you can make it a lot more explicit than that and say, you know, uh, machine one, machine two, subnet, VNet, VPC, whatever it is you're, you're building, mm-hmm. have it all as separate files. So you can do that. And then the other thing that I tend to do as well, so I'll be explicit upfront. I will have my provider in one file so that I, or all of the providers that I'm using, because sometimes I work with two or three providers at once and then have the variables in a separate file, like you, like you were saying before, but I, I explicitly kind of call them all out as this is what this part is for. And this is what this part's for. And you can then have a file called uh, something like override.tf. So you can have that. So if you, if you say, for example, always use, say you said an A3 for your production machines. If when you're testing something, you want to use a much smaller machine, like a D2 or something like that. I'm picking characters and numbers out of the air. I think D2 is a relevant machine size. You can build that. You can put that into your overrides, this uh, override file. So it's kind of like the notion of default variables in Ansible and variable precedence. Is that exactly mm. what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. So you have default variables and then you can override them with non-default so because you need these variables every time you build something and if it, if you haven't got some of them then the thing won't build but say you, you supply defaults and then change put in a special one if you need a special one mm. the other thing as well that i found and i didn't really realize how powerful it was until i started doing stuff a little while ago is if you create a folder for say for example your virtual machines so if you've got like a standard way you build a virtual machine. Um, you can use that as a module and a module is like a subroutine or a, or a role in Ansible speak. So you basically say, here's my module. It's got these variables I'm going to pass into it. So things like, you know, um, the VPC name, the subnet ID, the SSH key, if you've got on, you're talking about AWS and the prefix for the machine name or, you know, the suffix or whatever it is you want to call it. Or even something like the number of, of uh, resources, number of these types of resources that you want. You can put that in a lot of the time as well. 
Yeah. But so this module, this, this role effectively in Ansible speak, as I said, you can then from your terror, your main Terraform thing, call that repeatedly with different variables each time, but you've got the same set of code in that module. So say, for example, you're building, um, an AD server and uh, an iOS server, or you're building um, a bind server and a uh, web server and a mail server in Linux world, you can have the same module, the same single set of code for deploying one machine, but just have your variables in there to say, this machine's going to scale to this size. This is the the version of the, the provisioning script that I want you to run. This is the flags that I want you to pass in your uh, cloud init file, your user data, your custom data, depending on how you think about these things. So you've got like a standard way of deploying your template. And I found that, I found that really, really helpful. In fact, with Terraform. The last place I worked, which was uh, in government, they, they, it was all Terraform modules. So a team would write a module and then they can document that with the inputs that they're needed for, for this or, or that. And, if the if it's named well, then you you can just search in the GitHub repository for what you might need. <laughs> yeah, probably worth mention as well with modules. We make heavy use of them where we are at the moment, and you can make them as expansive or as minimal as you want. So you could have something as simple as, let's say, in AWS, you just create an S three bucket, and there's not a lot goes in there. Where, um, or you could make it so that it creates a lot of infrastructure all in one module. So when I did last year was to create an entire um, Kubernetes stack. So free masters, free workers, or more if you specified that. And then at that point, you could just call it with you know something like about ten variables and sometimes less than that, and it would build an entire Kubernetes stack for you at that point. A lot of it is about naming. I found with variables. Yeah. So so the name is very important and it gets passed down into it and it's is the basis for the naming of every, all the resources yeah there's also another thing about being able to version modules as well um if you use git as your source of the module rather than just a folder um, you can actually use git tags um, and say right these are all on this git tag and then if you make a change to that one for future infrastructure you can then say right this is now on tag 2.0 rather than 1.0 or whatever mm. your tags are and then over time you can move the other ones over the problem you get with that is um, you end up after a while going ah, actually 90% of the infrastructure is still on version 1 and uh, it's now going to take quite a while to move to version 2 but at least means that if you are testing changes it is possible to do it make changes to the module but not affect every single bit of infrastructure you're running that's a really smart idea thank you very much for that Stu. yeah I'll, I'll put something in the show notes about it but we're using quite uh, using that quite heavily at the moment cool yeah so i've kind of the way i was seeing it you have a variable file and you go into that variable file because all i'm doing at the moment we're just creating virtual machines we're not creating vnet anything like that at all we just literally just use it to deploy vm so the way i was seeing it we just have a variable file which that a user can go, or the whoever's doing it, you can just go into that, that one file and then define what everything wants to do within that one file. I mean, the power of modules is that you you write the module and then you you, you the user say so the user wants a VM, all they have to do is create a, a bit of Terraform that references the module with the necessary variables, like you know what size the instance is, maybe uh, how much you know if there's a disk attached or whatever, and then they run that bit of Terraform, it calls the mod the module that you've written to bring up the VM. Sounds good. Yeah. The only thing I would warn is um with Terraform, once you start using it, 
there's many different ways you can go about it in terms of if you've got an environment and you're creating all your infrastructure in that environment, it's quite tempting to do everything in the same folder that you're running from. So, you know, you're creating multiple services, multiple VMs, that kind of thing. Next thing you know, every time you run a Terraform plan, it takes 20 minutes to get to the end before you even know what's changing. So be careful how you separate it out, but also be careful about keeping everything in the same place because also the other problem is if you separate it out too much, you have a lot of back references or infrastructure that doesn't know the other part of the infrastructure has changed. So yeah, Terraform, you tend to do it and then work out six months later, you're not quite doing it right. And then another year later, you're going, nope, that still wasn't right. We're going for it another way. And then two years and just going, I just haven't got a clue how to do it anymore. We'll just keep going <laughs> with what we've got. Yeah. So going back to, so with Terraform, there's, there's kind of four commands, isn't there? I understand. Which I've so you kind of got an init command, which basically initializes the folder, doesn't it? And it kind of creates all the files it needs and it downloads the modules it needs to deploy. Uh, I've seen that it downloads the provider. So if you've got provider block in your Terraform, which is in your case would be Azure, there's a binary it needs to download in order to speak to uh, the Azure API. So that's mainly what init does, I think, at the moment. And then you've got a plan. Oh, yeah. So plan is, it, it takes a look at your Terraform code and does all the dependency graph stuff that John mentioned earlier. Uh, it looks at the, what it thinks it exists in the cloud um, and that's based on a, fi- a state file uh, and the state file is is basically a JSON object which describes all the infrastructure associated with this bit of Terraform in the, in this folder uh, and when you do a plan it will compare uh, that state file against your code and decide if it needs to create anything or destroy anything to make it fit that what your code describes. And then you can go apply, which basically just goes and deploys the code for you, or the deploy goes and deploys it in Azure, and then builds what needs to, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can either do, um, you can say apply, and it does a plan, and then does what it, what, uh, what the plan says it should do. But you can create a uh, Terraform plan and then output that to a file, so it captures this, this, the what the plan needs to do at that particular point in time and then you can do terraform apply that file uh, as well and you can use destroy as well to kind of um destroy stuff because <laughs> i've been using that quite a lot it's just like obviously testing and stuff and like one next bit of ansible i've been just like building machines destroying machines to kind of test my code yeah yeah one thing I'm going to warn on Terraform destroys, it de- destroys everything that's in that folder. So if you've got lots of infrastructure in there, you might end up blown away quite a lot. <laughs> if you if yeah. you use Terraform Taint, you can actually um, apply it to a certain um, part of the infrastructure. So this uh, VM or whatever, and then it will just say, right, this bit on its own needs rebuilding. But yeah, if you just do a destroy, you can um, cause some problems, uh, to yeah. say the least. I, I nearly blew away our staging infrastructure at one point doing that. <laughs> oh, better not put, click yes on that one. So this this was an argument against having everything in one fold in one folder, as you were saying earlier. Yes, <laughs> to say the least. Minimize minimize the impact. Of, yeah, uh, yeah. The other thing that I found with um, a, a risk of Terraform. And, and this very much comes back to the um, concerns around that, that a lot of people have, particularly when they're used to nurturing pets rather than cattle in the 
cattle versus pets you know uh, for those that don't know the analogy a pet is one that you sort of you carefully nurture and you fix things when they go wrong uh, a cat cattle is something that you know if it if it starts not working the way you want it to you you shoot it and you build a new one people that are more used to nurturing pets hate the idea of terraform because they can't they find it very difficult to put into context a kind of a world where you ha- only have a server that's running for a very short period of time. So the concept of having something you can destroy and rebuild very quickly is quite scary to some people. Mm. Now, the problem with that comes is if you've got, as you mentioned, you've got your entire infrastructure built in a Terraform file, they will point at that and they will say, we just want to make changes to this one part of the infrastructure and running this Terraform file if we accidentally run destroy, we will remove everything that's there. So what you should tend to do, and this is, this is not something I tend to do in my own stuff, but what you, if you're using Terraform to, in production use, is you should have one set of scripts that builds your environment that is all resources. And then you have another, another set of Terraform scripts, which is just to deploy the bits that, that change, and they should use data resources rather than resources because all that does is that's a read-only view of the world so you have to import those result those data models into terraform but once you've done that you can't destroy parts of the infrastructure that you rely on so you can't destroy the vpc or the vnet you can't destroy a subnet you can't destroy say for example your load balancer you can just see that it's there and use it as a thing to attach things to does that make sense yeah. yeah, there is also uh, lifecycle options as well, where you can actually turn off the ability to destroy certain things. Um, we found that one out recently with um, some of our fibers that we connect from ourselves into AWS. Um, because they were created in Terraform, someone just made a change and there was that many different changes in there that they just went, oh, well, let's just apply it. Next thing we know, we've lost connectivity to our new environment. And uh, yeah, it's because um, we destroyed some of our, um, what they call direct connects in AWS managed to get AWS support to fix it. But um, yeah, from from now on, that's a um, read-only resource and any changes we either have to do through the console or you have to become, you know, ch- turn that off specifically to make the changes to it. Also as well, what about as well is, is understanding if you're using Terraform is that if what happens is like, I think Gary says, the guy who's been on before, is about that if, if you want to add like a second data disk and you really need to do it through Terraform, Rather than going into the console, because obviously the Terraform state hasn't hasn't got that hasn't got that information in it, hasn't it? Yeah. So you can cause issues by having if you don't if you don't do everything through through Terraform. Yeah, I mean, it means sometimes what you can do there is you can either import the infrastructure so that it matches what's in your Terraform, or you can see what it's going to delete. And now, thankfully, in Terraform, when you do a plan rather than it used to just give you a list of what was going to change, it actually gives you the Terraform code that would change. And um, what you can do there is just basically copy and paste that, put it into your uh, file, and then um, it's no longer going to delete it because it thinks it's there. So that's a, that's a way I found around that a couple of times. But yeah, ideally everything, sh- if you're starting a, an environment brand new, everything should be in Terraform to begin with um, as best as you can, rather than trying to do anything manually or um, trying to find a way around it because you can get into some massive problems doing that so yeah that's basically what i've been doing um but obviously the next part is obviously now i built the vm i need to then obviously make it 
into a state that I want it to be in. So kind of the next I've been thinking is using Ansible as a configuration management um, to then kind of want to join something. I want to basically um, obviously Windows update it so it's up to our correct patch level. And um, because we have got data disk, I wanted to basically format that disk um, to a certain and then rename it etc etc and then on top of that i've also used ansible to uh, then configure wsus on top of that so that installs a wsus role and then it configures it how we want it because i thought well if we're going to be doing this on free environments i might just script it so that once it's happy in one environment i can then in our uat i can then deploy the same wsus server etc etc then obviously in live so um yeah i'm quite getting used to ansible now so i'm kind of Again, looking for tips and if I'm doing it the right way, because obviously at the moment, because the Ansible, you can't run natively on Windows. At the moment, I'm looking at probably looking at something. Is it AWX, their tower product? So, yeah, that's a good way of doing things. I don't know whether any of the rest of you used AWX or tower before. Have you? Not me. Right. So AWX is the open source version of Ansible Tower. Ansible Tower is a licensed product from Red Hat. Uh, and with a license, you get a certain number of nodes that you can talk to. AWX is entirely open source. Uh, you can clone it from the AWX repository on GitHub. What I will say, I've hit a problem with this in the past. If you just clone the repo and uh, run the install script, what you're actually working on is their equivalent of development, not on the latest tag. So what you need to do is check out a specific tagged version and then run the install script for that. Otherwise, when you contact the Ansible support team and say, I'm having this problem with AWX, they say, which version are you running? You say, I don't know, I just checked it out. And they went, yeah, that's the version. That's because you're running on development. Ansible Tower tends to run behind Ansible proper for the releases. So it tends not to, so at the moment, Ansible for me is something like 2.9.3, I think from memory. Ansible Tower is probably running 2.8 something or maybe even 2.7. And you need to explicitly upgrade the version of Ansible that lives inside AWX and Tower. It's not a problem. It's just something to bear in mind. Ansible Tower and AWX, I'll use the two terms interchangeably from now on because from a uh, an operational perspective, they are th- logically the same. There's, as I said, there are some quirks between the two of them, but they're logically the same. Ansible Tower is effectively just an orchestration engine and a scheduling engine. So you can tell tasks to run every X number of seconds or every X number of minutes or every X number of hours. You can tell it to run when a particular button is clicked or when a webhook is called. So from that perspective, I think Ansible Tower would be quite good for you, particularly if You've got Ansible configured to, you said you use um, Active Directory. So your machines, if you've got a service account that Ansible Tower knows about, which that's one of the other things that Ansible Tower is good at, is, is extracting secrets away from users' control. But so if you've got a thing where when the machine comes up, it makes an HTTP request against your Ansible Tower instance that says, uh, run a provisioning job across the estate, what that will then do is it will then you can ask it to ask your Azure environment for listed for an inventory that has a set of specific tags on it, uh, and then use that tags, that list of tags, to provision to run an Ansible playbook against it. So, for example, if your machines are all tagged, all your Windows machines are tagged with Windows, uh, all your web servers are tagged with web servers, and all of your mail servers are tagged with mail, what you could do is on that in that webhook say call the provisioning script for 
everything. And then it, you can then ask Ansible, Ansible Tower can then say, I will now deploy the patch set across all of my estate, which obviously assumes that your WSUS server is, has a consistent patch view of the estate. Uh, you can say things like deploy the uh, web application to the web servers and uh, make sure that the mail gateway's got the whatever mail config on it you need to do, those sorts of things. You can do all that with Ansible Tower. The other thing it means is that if you need to go onto it, so say, for example, you want to provision a machine outside of your live environment, so for testing purposes, because it's just Ansible underneath the surface. Say, for example, if you're running Vagrant, um, you can run an Ansible playbook against the Vagrant machine. So if you've got a Windows machine that's running Hyper-V, for example, you can run a Windows in, uh, machine inside there with Vagrant, perhaps. That's assuming that's how it works. I'm not sure. And then you can say, once that Hyper-V machine is up, you can then Ansible run against that from your your Linux virtual machine or your um, Windows subsystem for Linux virtual machine, uh, your Windows subsystem for Linux environment. Does that all make sense? Yeah. So, because what I'm doing at the moment, obviously, because on my work laptop is a Linux, sorry, a Windows box. Um, obviously, you can't run um, Ansible directly. So I'm just basically, at the moment, I'm just testing my playbooks out. I'm just getting it working is... That obviously you can install Windows subs, the WSL, the Windows Sub mm-hmm. Linux, and I think it's really cool because you can use on top of that code. So if you're in WSL, this is really cool. If you didn't notice, you can type code, then space, and then the name of the file you want to edit. It will then bring that file up in Visual Code in your in your machine, and then you can then from use Visual Code to then it obviously then talks to the the um, WSL Linux file system, and then you can you can edit the code. And also, I love about the thing I love about WSL or Visual Code is that obviously you can download templates and everything, or sorry, plugins. So it it, it um, does all the highlighting, the syntax, everything. Is that you can obviously you can pull up a terminal at the bottom so that you can you can be editing your code in whatever you're doing in Ansible, and then obviously you can then run your playbooks from the command line um, which is connected to WSL underneath which I think is really cool so I've been kind of been playing that and obviously I've been using um, obviously because obviously I'm managing Windows boxes you have to use WinRM to mm-hmm. uh, manage it and by default WinRM is, just works on port 5985 which is HTTP which is not HTTPS so they're recommending that you use HTTPS so as part of my things I've been doing is I've been because there's no certificate authority in our networks, I've created a, an internal CA. So all our machines in our network get given a computer certificate so that we can use WinRM over HTTPS um, so that we can then either use something like CredSP, which is the authentication method, so it's nice and secure. I haven't got CredSP working yet because I haven't had time, but I've got uh, NTLM working over HTTPS. So I've basically write a nice little script, which basically when the machine boots up, it um, looks at what certificates in the store and it adds it to listener and then opens up the correct kind of um, port, which is 5986, so that so that I can then talk to my machine to it. So what I wanted to know, what, what kind of things... Uh, obviously at the moment, I'm running it in one playbook. So I've got one YAML file, 
which is basically just lists everything out. Um, I've been looking at a lot of people's code. They have seem to have YAML files all over the place. Um, and I'm guessing that they, you have one main YAML file which then talks to the other YAML files, I'm guessing, because what I can see is that the, the, the guide I was following was from actually on um, Pluralsight is that you install it by pip. So it's using the, and it, obviously you have your host file is in like the ETC folder. So you have to have like, pseudo rights to edit that file and obviously then you have your kind of your yaml files playbooks inside your home directory so obviously this is just testing and obviously once i've got working i will then obviously then look at migrating it to awx but what do people recommend of how of what's the best way of installing ansible and way to host there or or the way they use playbook i'd, I'd get away from that single yaml file uh, I think the main yes. main things inventories roles and basically cool th- cool things with a, a YAML file, but then immediately refer to other files, especially inventories and roles. Interesting. So I do things slightly differently. I create an inventory file per location. What you'll tend to find when you start doing stuff with AWX is that AWX should be managing your inventory separately anyway. Yeah, so I tend to have an inventory file in the directory that I'm working on, which is my test environment. And then when I then start working outside that, so I'll tend not to commit that inventory file to the repo. So I'll add that to my git ignore. But yes, like Jerry said, you tend to use roles for most stuff and then use import or include tasks based on conditionals. So for example, I will, I'll have feature flags. So include Debian when Ansible OS, uh, sorry, Ansible distribution family, I think it is family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, is Debian. So it'll only include the part of the tree that might load the Debian specific things uh, in that Debian tree. And then when web server is true, include this file that does web server things. So you're only including stuff at a point where you need those. And then, as I said, use roles when it's relevant and appropriate to do so, which is most of the time, but there are some edge cases where you might not want to. It's kind of in the same way we were talking about modules uh, with Terraform earlier. They're kind of a way of feeding roles into tasks. Uh, Sorry, feeding variables into tasks. Roles are kind of a way to do that, as are modules. So, for instance, you could have something setting up a web server. If you hadn't already set it up in the image, and you, or, or you're using Ansible to make an image, you can say, um, here's a list of variables or a data structure which describes all the things that this web, web server is serving, all the hosts that it's serving, and just have those variables put in either automatically or by another data structure somewhere. And a role is what encapsulates the, to do a web server, do this task and then do this task and then do this task kind of thing with these variables fed into it. I'd say it's also probably worth um, looking at tags as well, just so you can test certain parts of your roles or whatever at that point, just so, you know, as you're building your roles or whatever, you don't have to run through the entire 
um, set of playbooks just to bring in, um, you know, test whether this DNS entry has changed or something like that. I've been using that heavily with the networking stuff just so I can go, right, okay, I don't want to change everything. I want just to test if I've done this one bit right. Um, and then, you know, afterwards you can run the lot. So that's quite useful as well. Yeah, that's quite handy because I was like, building machines and destroying because obviously i'm doing windows updates kind of thing so it takes a good 10 minutes to install the updates and reboots kind of thing and then i want to then test it's formatting the driver right obviously i'm then obviously after running the whole so i'll definitely have a look at tags so i do things slightly differently again it sounds like i'm a bit of an outlier <laughs> so i tend to create a role that does a set of things that i want to do so for example when i built the qnap box under debian the first thing I did was create a role for the NFS server. And then when I created that role, when you use Ansible Galaxy to create a role, so you do something like Ansible-Galaxy space init space, and then the path you want to put this role into. And by default, if you create a roles directory inside where your playbook is, and then inside there, so for example, mine is johntheniceguy.nfs server. Um, so in roles slash johntheniceguy.nfs underscore server. So I've done... Ansible dash galaxy space in its space roles slash John the nice guy dot NFS server in my roles directory. And it creates a directory structure for you in there. One of the directories it creates is called tests. And in there is a file called something like test.yaml. And it creates an inventory file for you as well. So what I can then do is go into that tests directory and just run just that role against my machine. So if you want to make it so that it will always repartition a disk or reformat a disk, you could have owl.partitionWindows drive, sake of argument. And what that will then do is it will make it so that you can then run your role test just to do the partitioning. So you just go into owl.partition slash test, ansible-playbook, uh, test.yaml, minus i inventory. Uh, and it will then run the test playbook against for just for that role and not for the rest of your playbook. But also I tend not to bother with tags. And I know I've got lots of colleagues that swear by it. And as I said, I know I'm a bit of an outlier here, but I tend to uh, use feature flags instead. So I will pass it in my role will have when manage DNS is true in the when statement for including a set of tasks. And I'll then set in my defaults, manage DNS true, uh, manage uh, web server true, manage blah, 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 true, you know, check for such and such true. So I can then override which feature flags I've got on there at the point at which I call the role. But by default, it has everything switched on. Also, to going back a moment, what you said, what's Galaxy? I've seen this about Ansible Galaxy. What is that? Ooh, Right. Just to quickly put a moment of context switching into here, Red Hat Summit was week before last, and there was a roadmap thing there that was talking about what's happening next with Ansible. I might have misunderstood things there, but I think Ansible Galaxy, whilst it may not be about to be renamed, I think its purpose is in the process of changing. So up till now, Ansible Galaxy is a tool for managing roles. So everything you've been looking at Anytime it's mentioned Ansible Galaxy until now has been about roles. What they've now started doing is using Ansible Galaxy for non-core content. 
And what they're trying to do is historically Ansible has had a, a bit of a, a problem because of their release cadence. You know, we'll release um, 2.9.whatever in six months. We'll release 2.10.something in 12 months. If a vendor comes along and says, we've got some code to manage widget machine, you know, 1.0, Ansible will say, okay, well, we'll put that in the, the release for 2.10 because we're in a feature freeze for 2.9, sake of argument. And they go, okay, but we want people to start managing these boxes now. Well, the only way you can do that is to create a whole series of directory structures inside your Ansible playbook and import a load of modules in there. And what they're now trying to do is move these, these modules into what they call Ansible collections. And Ansible collections will also be able to be collected from Ansible Galaxy. So whereas up till now, Ansible Galaxy has all been all about roles. So you do Ansible Galaxy in it for a role. Um, you will now be able to do Ansible Galaxy collection and a name of a collection, it will download and install that collection into your Ansible tree somewhere. I've not had a look at the proper look at this yet. So for example, when I was doing a lot of work with Fortinet, their modules were being created in a, a Git repo that you had to download and install into your tree. And that was a prelude to them getting it into Ansible 2.8 but they then had a load of changes they wanted to make for Ansible 2.9. Well, that had to go through a massive code review, which meant it actually missed, I think, the 2.9 window and is now scheduled to, was supposed to have been scheduled for 2.10. Fine, I might be wrong on that. Please don't kill me if you're one of my Fortinet people that I talk to, I'm very sorry about that. But so with the move now to collections, if they, if they say, okay, we've got widget box uh, 1.1 and it's got a whole different way of working with the API, they can just update their own collection and say, you're now working with the widget box uh, collection version, you know, 1.1, as opposed to the widget box collection 1.0, which they were using before. So that's then got all your roles and stuff. And I think what Ansible is trying to do is move to a world where you've got a base set of things, things like, you know, copying files in rsyncs, reboots, uh, package management stuff, they'll all be in core, but then anything that is not managed normally by the Ansible core team will be in a collection. So things like your FortiGates, your um, net backups, your Cisco boxes, they will all start moving into collections and they'll move away from being in core because it means the turnaround for fixes and stuff like that can be a lot quicker. That means that Ansible is going to be a lot more dynamic and your behavior is not going to be guaranteed quite so much between versions. But then again, there's a lot of stuff that breaks between Ansible 2.8 and 2.9, for example. Mm, 2.8, is not so much, but 2.6 to 2.7 was a big change, for example. Does that all make sense? Does indeed. Yep. Yeah, I suppose the other nice thing with the Ansible Galaxy... Um CLI is even if you're not going to commit your role to Ansible Galaxy itself, it does just give you a nice directory structure to work with at that point. So you don't have to then go off, create the right directories and everything, which is the main reason I've been using it so far. It's just to uh, make use of it. And it's things like um, the templates directory that will create within your role 
when you use the template module within Ansible, you don't have to put the full file path. You can just put the file name that's in the templates directory and it will first look there and then it will look elsewhere if you've got a you know an absolute path at that point, which again has been very useful for um, applying some of the roles I've been doing recently. It also had this thing that I that I used. It's a bit like uh, Terraform get where you you it will go and gather all the code for the modules that you're using. So it's and it's also like requirements.yaml in I think it's Django where you put a load or it's like um like npm when you need to install all the the modules and so on. You can basically just give it the name of the module and a a git address basically and it'll go and uh, grab from any git repositories that it needs to mm. and you can put it in like you do with um requir- requirements.yaml in python or also a bit like yeah terraform modules um so it's a way of getting all the code where you need it for when you're doing your ansible run there's an, there's an ansible galaxy command that does that uh, but i've only ever used it with that once it's also a bit like git sub modules is that is that kind of way of looking at it so to be fair that's the way that I tend to do my roles. So one of the things that you are encouraged to do uh, is just to do, just to pull someone else's role from Ansible Galaxy. What I would tend to say is because you don't control that code, you shouldn't just pull someone else's code in without looking at it to see what it does. And if you're looking at it to see what it does, and it's not an overly complicated piece of code, you should probably download it and use it at the version that you're looking at it because you don't know what will change between the one that you're looking at today and the version of it that comes out tomorrow. And if you're doing that, you may as well put it into your own code tree. <laughs> at least at least that's the way I do it. I, I'm, I'm not professing to be an expert at using third-party dependencies, but uh, that's the way that I would tend to do things anyway. I think it's different when you come to infrastructure or maybe that's just the way I'm looking at it because I haven't, been, I haven't developed in these other languages it's like uh, like a node.js development might just pull in all these modules and just use them without even really thinking about it um whereas if you're creating infrastructure uh you need to be a bit more careful maybe <laughs> dare i dare i say it i don't know I don't know whether Ansible has the ability to do it, but I know in um, other languages like, you know, um, Python's pip and stuff like that, you can pin to certain versions if that, you know, makes it so you don't go past a broken one um, or, you know, upgrade to a broken module. But as I say, I've not used um, many third-party modules to know whether that's a thing within Ansible or not. So you absolutely can. But so one of the directories that Ansible Galaxy creates is a directory called Meta. And in there is a main.yaml. So by default, all of the included code so uh, vars defaults tasks and handlers they all have a main.yaml that that's what's passed by when you when you include a role but there's also this main.yaml uh, sorry meta slash main.yaml and that contains the stuff that ansible galaxy in quotes should be using so you can do things like set versions uh, set email addresses set licenses and stuff like that set tags for the search in Ansible Galaxy, galaxy.ansible.com is where that points to. So you can search in there for stuff and you can put tags and what what particular OS targets your stuff targets in that. So you can set versions in there, but again, I'm not sure how much I would trust that. I'd rather pull from a, you know, a user submodule and say pin to a specific commit 
reference or a particular tag and just hope that, or, or as I said, you know, adopt the code tree for your own at that point. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And again, as I said, I'm not a, I'm not an expert at software dependencies. So if, uh, if there's anyone out there that thinks that I'm doing it completely wrong, please contact us and let us know. Cause I'd, I'd love to be, I'd love to be educated on how this is being done by, by normal people in, in production. So Al, have you got any other questions for us about uh, Ansible or Terraform? No, I think that's answered all my questions. Fantastic. So as you might have heard in the intro that we are now part of the other side network. So Stu, do you want to go into a bit more of that? Uh, yes, the other side network, it's um, a network of podcasts and um, it has uh, things like the Binary Times are part of that um, and there's the El Grey T Hot, am I getting that name right? And a few few other podcasts as well on there and um, yes, you can find more information on that from the um, otherside.network website. One of the good things about the, the other side network is that um, Dave Lee, who's our fantastic producer-in-chief, um, he uh, he's actually one. I think he's I think he's the founder or one of the founders of the the other side network. So uh, he's actually been courting us for some time, trying to get us on board, and uh, and uh, it's just been just been a matter of our being a bit rubbish to be honest with you <laughs> before we joined up. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so he's he's wonderful. <laughs> so what about our Patreon subscribers? Well. Well, we've got a, a good few subscribers now. I'd like to thank all of them as they all uh, donate one dollar or more per month. Uh, so that's uh, Andy and Darmo, uh, Dave, Mike, Maha, Stuart, uh, the other Stuart. Uh, one of them is actually a host of the show now, uh, and and also Yannick. Uh, you guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. You are indeed. Um- if you want to uh, be one of those patrons, uh, or if you want to just be part of the community and you're not already there with us, um, we accept email. Uh, so if you want to send an email to mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk, so that's mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk. Um, or if you go to adminadminpodcast.co.uk, uh, there's a contact us page there that will take you to things like our telegram group, uh, where we recruited the wonderful Stuart, um, into our, into our little cohort. Or you might want to join, as I said, join some of our community in Telegram group, um, which is also linked from that contact us page. Um, so yeah, we we are always welcoming of new new members of the community. And the bigger the community grows, the more welcoming we are. If that makes sense, absolutely. And if, hopefully, that doesn't make us sound like a cult. <laughs> <laughs> The final nice thing to mention about about that uh, that Telegram group is that because we're still relatively small, uh, you your signal will not be lost in the noise. Not to say that people with large communities aren't aren't amazing as well, but uh, if like me, yeah, you lurk on a lot of Telegram groups. When you come back to it, you won't have thousands of messages to read, and merely hundreds. <laughs> yeah, thanks for subscribing, and um, we'll uh, see you all soon. Bye for now. Bye. See you later. See you later. Now it's over.